And Christmas, our Christmas messages this time around are going to be a little bit different, like what everything else has been this year, a little bit different. We're not going to have the usual Joseph and Mary and wise men and shepherds in our series of four. We're turning to Matthew's Gospel. And Matthew's Gospel is very carefully arranged. And before Matthew even gets to the account of Jesus' birth, he goes to great lengths to detail his genealogy. And normally genealogies of the time were done through the male line. So, so and so was the father of, so and so who was the father of, so and so. It was very unusual to find a woman's name in a genealogy from that time. But Matthew records for us four in his genealogy of Christ. All of them were Gentiles. And all of them have had their reputations tainted in some way by some sort of sexual innuendo or scandal. And yet they're all there in the genealogy of Christ. And of these four, Ruth has probably made it through Christian tradition and history with her reputation most intact. Although I'm guessing that more than a few of you have wondered about that whole feet uncovering incident on the threshing floor with Boaz. After Ruth, it's then a toss-up between the Canaanite prostitute Rahab or the adulterous Bathsheba. But miles ahead of the other two, in terms of tarnished reputations, would have to be Tamar, the first lady in the genealogy of Christ. And I'm sure it would be fairly safe to say that for those of you who are parents, most of you skipped over Tamar's story when you were reading Bible stories to your children in bed at night. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, they would have no doubt been part of your bedtime curriculum. But Tamar and Judah probably didn't get much of a mention. Much of the book of Genesis, at least the second half of the book of Genesis, deals with the record of the life of Joseph. Joseph the dreamer, Joseph with the coat of many colours, Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers, Joseph taken to Egypt, Joseph who rises eventually to be second only to Pharaoh. In the middle of this story of Joseph comes one chapter that gives us the account of his brother Judah. And that is where Tamar makes her grand entrance. Now I've been teaching children's church for pretty much 30 years straight. And never once have we covered, as far as I can recall, the story of Judah and Tamar in children's church. And there's good reason for that. It's a little bit complex to explain to children. There's a lot of sex in that one chapter. There's prostitution, there's deception. And the word semen even gets a mention in the Bible. Think back, when was the last time you can remember this passage being preached, if 
at all. That's why when Pastor Glenn suggested this series, I told him that I'd be very excited to preach Tamar's story because Old Testament always excites me. The way that the Old Testament interlinks with the New Testament and points us towards Christ always excites me even more. But there's nothing I like better than getting inside the skin of a biblical character who I believe has had a bad rap throughout Christian tradition and history and trying to understand them. And in this respect, I think Tamar would perhaps have to be one of the top candidates for the most poorly understood person in the Bible. She'd definitely be in the top ten. Now, the reputations of all four of our ladies that we're going to cover in the course of the next few weeks have been tarnished throughout Christian tradition and history. But Matthew has chosen to include them in his genealogy for a reason. All of them were remarkable women. And Pastor Glenn and I believe that not only does each one reflect an aspect of the meaning of Christmas, that of hope or peace, joy and love, but each one in some way speaks to the identity of the one who was to come. You know, when I was in about year eight or nine at high school, we were prescribed a book as part of the English curriculum, and I'm sure that many of you would have read it. Next to the Bible, it probably ranks as one of the most influential books in my life. Perhaps it was simply because I read it at a very influential age. The book is Harper Lee's classic, To Kill a Mockingbird. Set in the 1930s in the southern states of America, the book explores issues of race and of class and of prejudice through the eyes of two siblings, Scout and Jem Finch, whose lawyer father, Atticus Finch, seeks justice for a black man who's been accused of rape of a white girl. And the review on the back of this book simply reads, no one ever forgets this book. And I certainly did not. 30 years later, I can still hear the wise words of Atticus Finch to his young daughter, Scout. And these were the first words I thought of when I knew that I would be preaching the story of Tamar. He said to his young daughter, you never really understand a person until you consider things from their point of view, until you climb into their skin and walk around in it. And they're wise words for life. And they're wise words for studying the Bible. And so this morning I hope that we can climb into the skins of Judah and of his sons and try to understand why they acted the way that they did. But more than that, I hope that we can climb into Tamar's skin and walk around in that for a little while to get to know her and see things from her point of view. Then and only then might we be able to see beyond our prejudices that we have about her actions to see the woman that Matthew thought was worthy to include in his record of the genealogy of Christ. 
So would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 38? Now it's quite a long reading and so rather than read the whole thing and then go back and, and pull it apart, we're going to just work our way through it. We're not going to read it continuously and I'm not going to have the words up on slides because I want to illustrate it as I go along. So if you do have a Bible or a mobile device with you, it will be handy if you can find Genesis 38. Firstly, so that you can follow along, but secondly, so that you will believe that what I'm telling you is actually what is written in the Bible. So we're going to pick up the story at verse 6. And the introduction that happens before verse 6 tells us that Judah has left his brothers and he's married the daughter of a Canaanite. And that's a whole story and a half in itself, in that brief introduction right there. And we're going to come back to that later. But at the very least, alarm bells should be ringing by the fact that he has married the daughter of a Canaanite. Because if you recall Abraham's example, remember Abraham refused to find a wife for his son among the Canaanite women, instead sending his servant back to his own land and people to find a wife for Isaac. So Judah's done something a little bit out of the mould here. Evidently, he did not learn from his great-grandfather's example in this respect when he chose to marry a Canaanite woman. We're not told her name, only that she was the daughter of Shua and that she produced for him three sons, Ur, who was the oldest, then Onan, and then Shelah. So reading from verse 6, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So there she is there on the screen and we've married her off there with that straight line to Ur. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. So if we're going to try and get into Tamar's skin here, we have to begin by imagining what life must have been like for Tamar to live with someone and be married to someone whom the Bible describes as wicked in the Lord's sight. It's not that he was a bit lazy and didn't do the dishes every now and then. It's not that he was good for nothing. Not that he was occasionally nasty or prone to the occasional fit of anger. Wicked is the word that is used to describe her. Tamar's husband was wicked. And we don't know what she endured being married to a wicked man. But we can imagine and whatever it was, there would have been absolutely nothing that she could do about it. But God could, and he did. So wicked was this man that God chose to blot him out of existence. Tamar is now a widow. And she's a childless widow, meaning that Ur's family line would end with him were it not for an ancient tradition or custom 
which had been established to prevent just such a thing happening. We go on to verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. So Judah had commanded Onan, his second-born son, to fulfil his duty to her to raise up offspring. Now the Bible tells us this offspring was not for Tamar. This is not some attempt to make her feel better in her grief, to ease the grief that she's feeling. Verse 8 tells us this child was for his brother. And this is not some spur-of-the-moment plan that Judah has dreamt up in his grief for Ur. The Bible describes this as Onan's duty. This tells us that it was a well-known and established custom of the time. It was a custom that by the time of Moses would be established in law. It's called the Leveret Law. Um, and it comes from the Latin liver, which means husband's brother. And it concerned the duty of a childless dead man's brother to produce a son who would carry on the family name and inherit the estate of the dead man. This custom, which later became law, obligated both the widow and the dead man's brother to make significant sacrifices on behalf of the dead man. Put yourself in Tamar's skin again and walk around for a bit. Her wicked husband has died, but instead of being free to walk away and rebuild her life, relieved to be rid of that man, she's expected to produce an heir for him. Now put yourself in Onan's skin and walk around. His situation is no less complicated. Judah, as we've seen, had three sons, Er, Onan and Shelah. Now if Judah was, himself was to die, there would be an inheritance to those three sons and we're going to think of that as a pie. Now, whilst Er was alive as the oldest and firstborn son, he would receive a double portion of any inheritance and he would also have the responsibility of looking after the family once his father died. Onan would receive one portion and as would his brother Shelah, which means that while Er is alive, Onan's inheritance is one quarter. But once Er dies, Onan becomes the one to inherit the double portion. There's one portion due to Shelah. And so Onan's inheritance increases from one quarter to two thirds. But if Onan does what is required of him, suddenly there's a new firstborn who takes the place of his dead father and that firstborn inherits the double portion. Onan and Shelah move down the pecking order, receiving only a single portion each. And Onan's inheritance drops from two thirds back to one quarter. So you can see that there's much more at stake here for Onan than simply 
preserving his dead brother's name. Fulfilling his duty means costly sacrifice for him. And it is a sacrifice that Onan apparently was just not willing to make. Verse 9. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing an offspring for his brother. Put yourself back in Tamar's skin again. Imagine what it must have been like for her to have been saved by the death of her husband from what must have been a woeful first marriage, to then be given in marriage to his younger brother, honour bound to produce an offspring for her unworthy deceased husband, and if that wasn't bad enough, to then have to endure the repeated humiliation of being used by him for pleasure with no chance to conceive or fulfil her duty. And all the while, her own fertility would increasingly be under scrutiny by her father-in-law and by the rest of the wider community. Once again, God steps in and blots Onan out of existence. Verse 10, what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Tamar is widowed for a second time. And Judah is left with only one of his three sons, the youngest, Shelah. Shelah is the only living son that Judah has, the other two both having died during their respective marriages to this woman, Tamar. As next in line with the death of Onan, the responsibility now falls to Shelah, to preserve the honour of his brother by producing a son for him. Had he done so, he would have faced exactly the same dilemma as his brother did in terms of inheritance, only the costs or the stakes would be even higher, given that as the only living son, he has 100% of the inheritance until he produces another offspring. This was a dilemma, however, that Shelah would never have to face because his father would make sure of that. Verse 11, Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. So at this point, Tamar would have been betrothed to this third brother, Shelah. She was still duty-bound to this family that had caused her so much grief up until this point, and she returned to her father's household to await the appearance of her new groom when her father-in-law decided that the time was right. She waited, Shelah grew up, but still he did not come. And so here she was, twice widowed, twice childless, humiliated and disgraced. And with the passing of each day, week and month, it was becoming increasingly obvious that Judah had no intention of ever sending Shelah to retrieve his bride. 
Tamar would be left with no way of fulfilling her duty to honour her dead husband and ensure that his name was not extinguished forever. And it's around this time that Judah's own wife, the daughter of Shua, herself passed away, leaving Judah a widower and planting a seed of hope in Tamar. Tamar had the responsibility to uh, look after the line that was to come from her husband. And with the daughter of Shua dying, I believe, she saw some hope for the rescue of the line of her unworthy husband. Verse 12, after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. And when Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep. And his friend Hira, the Adullamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on the way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Inaim which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When it became evident that her own obedience was being stymied by her father-in-law, Tamar took the opportunity to do something about it. She took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil and sat down at the entrance to Inaim. And this name is packed with meaning. Inaim means eyes in the plural. It's, from, it's a Hebrew word. It means eyes. And so to sit at the entrance to Inaim was literally to sit at the opening of the eyes. And figuratively in the Old Testament, the eyes refer to judgment. To say something is good or bad in the eyes of someone is to cast judgment. Tamar is sitting here in a place of judgment and somebody's eyes are about to be opened. So she sits. That's all she does. She sits and waits. When Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. Not realising that it was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. Two little verses that speak volumes to the depths to which Judah had fallen. Remember our little introduction to this passage about Judah leaving his brothers and marrying a Canaanite woman. His brother Joseph's story consumes most of the, the second part of Genesis. It was Judah who had led the rebellion against his brother Joseph, a move which resulted in Joseph being taken by force and sold as a slave in, to a foreign land where he would be falsely accused, thrown into prison before ultimately rising to become second only to Pharaoh. Joseph did not choose to leave his brothers. It was forced upon him. And the leader of that rebellion was Judah. 
But through all of his suffering, Joseph chose to remain faithful to God. Judah, on the other hand, willingly walked away from the family, likely hurt by his father's favoritism, first of Joseph and then of Benjamin. Judah moved into Canaanite territory himself. He found for himself a wife and, he, and evidently he adopted some of the Canaanite ways. We have to assume this since a little further on in verse 21, it is made clear that Judah believed Tamar to be a shrine prostitute and yet he had no problem approaching her. So here's Judah, a direct descendant of Abraham, a bearer of the promised seed of Abraham, approaching what he believes to be a shrine prostitute for sex. It is the height of disrespect for God's promises to Abraham. And it would be hard to imagine him falling any lower than what he has. But he's about to get more than he bargained for here. Reading from halfway through verse 16. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Effectively, what Tamar walked away with in her hands was the ancient equivalent of Judah's driver's license and credit card. It was his identification. A man's seal was like his signature. The seal was either a, a, a ring, like a, it was something you made an impression with in wax. And normally it was a ring, but it could be just a, a stamp type thing. And it was normally worn either on the finger or on a cord around your neck. If a man put his seal on something, it was like writing his signature on a document today. It was giving his authorization or his authority. And likewise, the staff was almost a secondary form of identification because it would have been carved with carvings that were unique either to the family or the individual. You didn't give these items away to someone that you met on the side of a road any more than one of us would give our driver's license and credit card away to someone we saw sitting on the side of the road. For Tamar to have both the seal and the staff meant that she could prove beyond doubt the identity of the man who had approached her. And it meant that she had no need for modern DNA testing to prove the parentage of any baby that would come from that union. Patient, strong and smart was this lady. Time moves on and Judah wants his seal and his staff back. So rather than going himself to pay off the prostitute, he sends his friend to do the dirty work for him, from verse 20. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Dalamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the man who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at an inane? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, told, your daughter-in-law Tamar 
is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Now I said earlier that it would be hard to imagine Judah falling any lower than the point at which he flagrantly disregards the promised seed of Abraham by approaching what he believes is a shrine prostitute. Well, now he's in a free fall, a double standards free fall, demanding that his daughter-in-law be brought out and burnt to death for something that he himself knows he is guilty of. Perhaps he saw it as his opportunity just to get rid of her once and for all out of the family. After all, perhaps in his eyes, he'd lost two of his sons in marriages to her. But put yourself back in Tamar's skin. Imagine living all of those years, having tried repeatedly to uphold the honour of this most unworthy family, all the while unable to escape its control. Her moment of triumph comes as she's brought out to face her death. And as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said, and she added, See if you recognise whose seal and cord and staff these are. And I don't know about you, but I want to cheer her on at this point when she says simply, see if you recognise whose these are. No explanation was necessary, no pointing of any fingers, no shouting was needed. It was simply enough to produce the seal, the cord and the staff and to ask the question. And there, in that instant, eyes were opened and judgment was pronounced on both Judah and Tamar. Verse 26, Judah recognised them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. What a verdict. She is more righteous than I. It is the highest of compliments. In the Old Testament, God is righteous and his covenant people are called to live righteously. The word is anchored in the covenant relationship. God's people living in covenant relationship with him desire to do what pleases him. Their righteousness is what should distinguish them from all others. Yet here is Judah, a direct descendant of Abraham, showing complete disregard for the covenant while this Gentile woman, Tamar, almost got herself burned to death trying to preserve the seed of Abraham. In her is found hope for the restoration of the line of Judah. Her faithfulness to restore this most unworthy family, despite all of the suffering they have put her through, points us to the one who, is, who was to come, the one who would be hope for all, of the world and whose suffering would be restoration for all of the unworthy who would put their faith in him. You know, one of the many names for Jesus in the Bible is the Lion of Judah. Jesus is a direct descendant from the Lion of Judah. But if ever there was a lioness of Judah, surely it would have to be this widowed Gentile woman, Tamar, sitting at the road 
on the road at the entrance to Inaim. Patient, wise, determined and quietly powerful, waiting for her opportunity to do what she was duty bound to do, to preserve the name of her dead husband and in doing so to bring restoration to the line of Judah. What was the impact of all of this on Judah? Well, the man who had turned his back and walked away from his family and from God to immerse himself in the Canaanite ways over the preferential treatment his own father was giving first to Joseph and then to Benjamin became the one who would later lay down his life for that same boy, Benjamin. You recall when um, Joseph's men found the silver cup, it was found in Benjamin's sack. And it was Judah who offered himself in place of Benjamin. Tamar's righteous example, it seems, had made a deep impression on him. Restored back to his family and to God, Judah became a leader among them. And as for Tamar, she produced twins from that union with her father-in-law. Twin boys, Perez and Zerah. And so by her actions, both of Judah's dead sons, Er and Onan, were restored simultaneously. History, however, has not been kind to Tamar. Whilst Judah seems to have come through largely unscathed, Tamar, the one whose actions ultimately earned her the label of righteous, seems to be remembered by most as a deceiving prostitute who tricked her father-in-law into providing a baby for her that she so desperately desired. This was not Tamar's motive at all. And it is my hope today that climbing into the skin of Tamar and walking around in it for just a little while has helped us all to see that this, see this attitude for what it is. It is one of prejudice. Hers were more righteous motives. And the biblical record, I think, attests to that. Judah was the head of his family line, the line of Judah. He was their leader. He was a bearer of the covenant that God had with Abraham. But he was taking them all on a downward spiral away from God. And instead of blindly following, one woman was brave enough, patient enough, smart enough, strong enough and committed enough to get all of them back on track. Many have criticised her and usually they cite later biblical laws which prevented a father-in-law marrying his widowed daughter-in-law to produce an offspring. But they were later biblical laws. The archaeological record suggests that around the time of Judah and Tamar, Hittite and Assyrian laws from that time actually support the practice as legitimate that if the brother did not fulfil the duty, the responsibility fell to the father-in-law. What Tamar did then was to hold Judah accountable under the law of the time. It was his duty to ensure that Selah produced an heir for his brother. And if Selah did not, it seems that under the law of the time, 
then the responsibility would fall to Judah. In the end, what people think of her is irrelevant. It's what God thinks of her that matters. And Tamar's actions are vindicated not once, but three times in the biblical record. Firstly, in Judah's own pronouncement of her as righteous. Secondly, she is honoured seven generations later with a mention by the elders who pronounce a blessing on the marriage of Boaz and Ruth. Ruth 4 verse 12 says, Through the offspring that the Lord gives you, meaning Boaz, by this young woman, Ruth, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now, if what Tamar had done was so scandalous, do you think the elders would be bringing it up and using it as a blessing at somebody's wedding generations later? Generally, we like to hide the black sheep in our family. We don't mention them in wedding speeches, at least not in a positive way. But the final and most glorious vindication comes with Tamar's inclusion, of course, in Matthew's genealogical record. Tamar did what was right in the eyes of God. Against all odds, she did it. It was a long and hard road for her, but she succeeded in restoring hope to that unworthy line of Judah. And God blessed her for it through the line of her son Perez from whom would come the Lion of Judah, the one who would be hope to the unworthy world. That is her great legacy. For Judah, there was a very clear moment when his eyes were finally opened to the reality of his situation. And to his credit, when faced with the irrefutable evidence, he did seem to repent and turn his life around. What of you? More than 2,000 years ago, a child was born in Bethlehem and the evidence supporting those events around his birth has stood the test of time. Have you had that moment yet when your eyes have been opened? And if you have, how has it changed you? Despite our unworthiness, Jesus was willing to suffer and to die to redeem us. That is the hope of Christmas. Father God, praise you as the one to whom Tamar's story points. For Jesus is the hope for an unworthy world. Father, this Christmas may the eyes of many be opened in this place, in our own families, in the community in which we are placed and indeed in the wider world to recognise the hope that we do have in Jesus. May there be many restored unto you this Christmas. Amen. We're going to finish by singing What a Friend we have in Jesus. If you'd like to stand, our musos will lead us.
be with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.